Today's reading is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram left just as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all of their possessions, and those who became members of their household in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as the sacred place of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. The Canaanites lived in the land at that time. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I give this land to your descendants. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there, he traveled toward the mountains east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and worshiped in the Lord's name. Then Abram set out toward the arid southern plain, making and breaking camp as he went. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest students, you may head to the lobby and find your teacher. <laughs> the rest of you may be seated. I love almost getting tackled by kids as they're running. What feels like away from me. Um, it's good to be with all of you. Um, if something about Grace, if you're not, if you're if your first time or you haven't been here for a while, uh, a few, well, a couple months back, we showed this image of this geometric shape of a triangle. And we said, these are some things that we sense God wanting us to press into. I don't have that image, otherwise I'd show it. But these three things were story, formation, and mission. That these were three things, not new things, but things that we sense um, God is wanting us as a church to recover, wanting to spend time talking about, and truly want to press into together um, in our life together as a community. Now, one of the ways that we're pressing into mission, Beth acknowledged that, is the ABCD um, component. Yes, last week when Alvin Sanders was here, we had a second hour time together, and people were asking, what does it look like for a church to truly be an embodiment of what he was describing in his sermon? People who are shaped by the Lord's Prayer. And his answer was, well, you're already getting started. ABCD is like the place I would tell people to start, which was super encouraging, an affirmation that this is where God has for us. We've been in talking about story and the story of scripture, which we're going to continue. But then also in that arm of formation, one of the things we've been, we've been doing, of course, is small groups. But then a few weeks ago, um, Steve Porter and I, we've been working on developing a retreat. We took some people away for a retreat as like a beta test for this retreat, um, of asking the question, what does it look like to live life in an ongoing way in the presence of Jesus, in the love of Jesus? What does it look like to be people who abide? And so 
we, we are developing that retreat because that's a retreat we want to offer to the whole church. We have a couple of retreats that we think are absolutely essential for us as grace, at Grace, for our people. The Psalms retreat and then this Imbibe retreat. So you'll be hearing more about that. Really exciting. But I keep on getting this sense that God is just being faithful to us. He always has been, but this is a really sweet season. I just, I just want to say that. It feels like a very sweet season of our life together. Very, very good. Uh, and so I want to celebrate because God is truly the one to uh, be honored for that and to be glorified for that. But thank you um, for being part of that. So I'd like to pray and then we'll get into um, the sermon this morning. God, you are, you are the God who has adopted us. We are your children. And Father, I know that there are people here who are intrigued, who have been listening, who've been feeling that sense of, of invitation from you. And God, I ask that this might be a morning where they take a step toward you. They might risk wanting to get involved in this story to be people who connect with you, who experience your love. And God, some of us need to return. Some of us need to return back to you. And so for those of us who need to return, God, give us that sense, that sense of needing to repent, that sense of needing to confess, to be people who open our hands in surrender to say, you, Lord, have the gift of eternal life. God, I ask that somehow you would speak through me, through your word, and not just here in this time, but also as it continues beyond this with people and conversations um, with each other. God, you are a God who speaks. We trust that you will, and we ask that you would help us to be people who can hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as we've been in the story of Scripture, we've talked about creation, looking at Genesis 1 and 2, how God has created the world and, and with order, and it was good, and wanting to create image bearers who embody and reflect who he is in the world. And then we looked a couple weeks back at Genesis 3, the fall, the fallout, people who wanted to go their own way, wanted to be their own gods, and ultimately reject God the Creator, and take life into their own hands. Tempted, of course, by, by the adversary, by the snake, to do something that they were, they were told not to do. And then we see the fallout from that. Well, this morning, we're going to look at chapters three and four of the entire narrative of Scripture. Israel and Jesus, somehow I picked the short straw of needing to cover pretty much the whole thing. Uh, from Genesis 4 all the way to really the beginning of Acts. Uh, so I hope you brought food. Um, this is going to be... This is going to be good and quick and too much. So we're not going to get through everything, but we're going to kind of put this within the larger arc of redemption. What does it look like that God is a God of redemption and how this story of redemption is really told from Genesis 4 all the way through the Gospels? But again, I want to begin where Will left off 
which is where we find ourselves after Genesis 3, which is these relationships that were perfect and whole and good, all of a sudden disrupted and broken. So Adam, if you want to throw up that first image, the work of art that Will brought before us, um, you have this person, humanity, people created in God's image. That up arrow representing that the relationship with God was good, and then relationship with each other was good, relationship with creation was good, relationship with itself was good. All of that distorted and broken when humanity took life in their own hands. And then it's from this point on that God is going to enact this story of redemption to redeem that which is broken and to bring together that which has been disrupted. And so there are three threads that I want to sort of hang on to as we talk about this, this narrative of redemption. I want to talk about redemptive blessing, redemptive covenant, and redemptive kingdom. And we're actually going to begin in Genesis 12. Um, you heard that read. But just so you know, in between Genesis 4 through 11, what we see is the pattern of the fall being enacted over and over and over again. We see violence between humanity. We see the earth needing to be cleansed as we look at the flood because the way that the people were with the environment, with creation, with each other was just too much. That God wanted in a way, or it seems like he wanted to start over, but he doesn't. What he does is he then brings together a family. We know the story of Noah and the flood, and it's from there that he begins to renew or restore creation a bit. But then really the story of redemption takes off here in Genesis 12, which we'll look at again, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture. So be ready. If you want, you can get your phones out, get the search bar ready, or you can get the blue Bibles in front of you ready, because uh, we're going to look at scripture. We're going to start Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So just we stop right there. What's the word that you hear over and over and over again? What? Bless, blessing, blessed. Over and over and over again, what God is telling Abram at this point is that, look, I want you to go. I'm going to bless you so that what? So that you will be a blessing. You will be blessed so that you will be a blessing. So this redemptive arc begins with God singling out a person and a family through whom the world, the nations, the people will be blessed. So God is taking this very particular look at this family to, in order that... There would be universal consequences. That is key. So when God calls a people, it's for the sake of the broader good of the world. Abraham is going to be blessed so that he will be a blessing. Now let's look at a few components of this promise of blessing. 
So I'll make of you a great nation, bless you, make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. Those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the persons whom they'd acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. And when they, when they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negeb. So what God is actually doing in promising to Abraham is that those relationships that were disrupted and broken from the fall are going to be restored. Abraham is going to be blessed by God. There's going, God is already initiated with Abraham. So there's this connection between this family and God. He is going to be blessed so that people might be, might be blessed, then he is going to give land to Abraham, again, this connection between humanity and land, and then Abram, Abram, with his sense of identity and vocation, knows what he is supposed to do with his family, and so there's this sense of wholeness with himself. We see the beginning work of this redemption taking place that was broken at the fall. And a way to solidify these promises is a way to solidify this, this um, idea of redemption that God is going to enact. God is going to give and make a covenant. So if you want, you can turn over a couple of chapters to Genesis 17. So we see this redemptive blessing that is for the sake of the world, for the sake of people. Abraham, Abram is blessed. I keep on going back and forth. I'm sure you know the story. He's going to get his name changed here, actually, at this point. Um, so I keep getting confused between the two. But it's the same guy, same dude. So Genesis 17, we see the beginning of this redemptive covenant. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations." And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God." Verse 9, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins as it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old, including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money must be circumcised. So so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Pun totally intended, because he has broken my covenant. What God is getting at here is that God is a promise-making God, and part of his redemptive plan is to covenant himself to people, and that people would be covenanted to him. So God makes a promise, I will bless you, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Kings, kings will come to you. And the way that you know this is going to happen is because I am going to make a covenant with you and you are going to make a covenant with me. And here are the terms of the covenant. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is in some ways like a contract. But as we see throughout the story of redemption, For God, it is not contractual. And that is the best news. But there are terms to this covenant that God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, you will be covenanted to me, and here is the way that you are going to reveal and show and embody that covenant. You are actually going to show with your very bodies that you are mine and that I am your God and you are to take this seriously. So this is so important because as we, as we go forward into the church and we talk about things like circumcision and why is that such a big deal? This is why it's such a big deal because this was part of what it looked like to be covenanted to God. This is what it looked like for God's redemption to be at work, to bring a people to himself in order to bless the world and then to create a covenant between this partner and God that should not be broken, cannot be broken, because the consequences are dire if those are broken. People will be cut off. Now, we will see this redemptive blessing, this redemptive covenant continue. If we know the story from Genesis 12 toward the end of Genesis, this people do, in fact, multiply. And then they find their their way into Egypt. They find their way into Egypt, and then while there, because they're so numerous, they become a threat to the Egyptian empire. And they are then enslaved. Now, if you know your Bible, you know what happens. All of a sudden, there's this standoff between this, this earthly god, Pharaoh, and this creator god, Yahweh, And they go into this competition of everything you can do, I can do better. And so Pharaoh is is oppressing this people. He's making the, the, uh, the people of Israel build his empire. God then singles out a person, we know his name is Moses, to go and deliver the people. And so God then begins to show himself as the God of the universe, the God of of all people, the God of life and death for the purposes of rescuing Israel and redeeming Israel from the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. We know, in fact, that God wins. 
God brings out the people of Israel, and we know that God then basically consumes the Egyptian empire in the Red Sea. And then God pulls this people out, they wander in the desert, and then all of a sudden, God is going to do something new. Not with the person, Abraham, and just his family, but now with the people, the people that he's redeemed, the people of Israel. So if you want, you can jump over to Exodus chapter 19. And here's where we begin to see this beginning of this redemptive kingdom playing a part of this larger arc of redemption. So God again calls the people of Israel out and he is going to give them these new terms of a new covenant that he is going to make. Exodus chapter 19, let's start in verse 1. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. But listen to this. You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So this ark of redemption begins with this blessing to Abraham. It is solidified by a covenant. And then these covenants continue to happen between Israel and Abraham, but then now Israel and the people of Israel, God and the people of Israel. And now the terms of this covenant are they are to be a certain type of kingdom a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. Now, this idea of priests. Now, a priest is something like a go-between, something like, a, like a, a, a person or a thing that is able to be, to be this, this in-between, making it possible for God to engage and be with the people of Israel. That is Israel's job, to be priests to the world so that people might have access to God through Israel. Now again, if we were to go back to how these relationships were disrupted, we see this redemptive ark attempting to put these pieces back together. Israel now knows they are God's people. They are then to be priests to the world. They are to be a holy nation. They are given 613 laws of what it looks like to live and inhabit the land. And then they again have an identity. Things within themselves are attempting to be redeemed and restored. God is always wanting to fix that which is broken. And God is enacting this plan over and over and over. And what we, are, what we will see is that this is a plan that is not because God is messing up. Oh, that doesn't work, so I'll try this. 
It's because God is actually at work to do something significant for the entire world that somehow includes you and me and why we're here doing this right now. This is our story too. But if, again, you've read your Bible, you know that the people of Israel can't help but replay what happened in Genesis 3. The people of Israel, they reject God. They are told not to serve any other gods, but they can't help themselves. They involve themselves in idolatry. They are to be a priestly kingdom who are to be a blessing to others, but they can't help but enslave and even impress others. They are to be people who inhabit the land well and take care of it, but they can't help but be people who consume and hoard. They are to be a people who understand who they are and have been made to do, have a sense of wholeness and identity, but they can't help but lose themselves over and over and over again. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Daniel Long's life. And so as a result of this, God sends the people of Israel to exile. They have not kept the terms of the covenant. And so the question is, what's God going to do? Here, a people have broken the promises that they said they would do, the people that they would be before God. So what is God going to do? Now, there are some harsh words in the book of Jeremiah. If you want to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 7. Because here we see Jeremiah as a prophet. Prophets were sent to the people during exile or before exile as they were being sent into exile to remind them of a few things, namely how they broke the terms of the covenant. The word that came to Jeremiah, this is verse 1 from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Now thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words that this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we're safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my, my name dwell at first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people of Israel. And now, because you've done all these things, says the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. 
Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, to the place that I gave to you and to your ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, just as I cast out all your kinsfolk, all the offspring of Ephraim. Harsh words. God is saying, look, you think that what you are doing in my house, in the temple, is what you are supposed to be doing, but you have completely fallen away. You have been listening to deceptive words. You have been worshiping false gods. You have been committing murder and idolatry and adultery. Over and over and over again, the subtext is you have broken the covenant that you've made. And so the Old Testament ends with this large question. As the people of God are in exile, what is God going to do? The people of Israel are wondering the same thing. We have broken the covenant. We have not kept our terms of the agreement. We do not know who we are spiritually. The temple is gone. We do not know who we are nationally. We no longer have a kingdom. We do not know who we are as a people because God has cast us out. And so what is God going to do? But here's the good news of the story of redemption. Because God's the author of that story, he holds to his side of the covenant, to his side of the promises. So as we turn the pages into the New Testament and we look at the person of Jesus, all of a sudden the question is answered, what is God going to do? He is going to keep doing what he has always been doing since the people have rebelled against him in Genesis 3. He is going to save. He is going to redeem. He is going to restore. And so all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. And it's in this person of Jesus that we see these threads of redemptive blessing, redemptive covenant, and redemptive kingdom intersect in their most full and beautiful and wonderful way. I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, oh no, we just got to Jesus, but it's okay. So if we think about Jesus and we think about these three threads of redemptive blessing, covenant, and kingdom finding their full expression in the person of Jesus, the gospels, now listen to this, the gospels are wanting to make those intersections for you. The gospel writers have lived and seen and witnessed what this person of, who this person of Jesus is and his claims to be God's son, his claims to be God in the flesh, and they are then making sense of that story, re-narrating the previous story of Israel in light of who this person of Jesus is. That is why the gospels, the good news, are the good news, because they are wanting to tell us what has always been true is that God's ark story of redemption has not ended, but has continued. And now that particular person that God was wanting to bless in order to be a blessing in Abraham, that particular people, the people of Israel, that he was wanting them to be the priestly kingdom and the holy nation, all of a sudden, again, it narrows its focus onto this person of Jesus who is the full and complete embodiment of that redemption. 
And so that is why the gospel writers at the beginning of the gospels, Matthew in particular, is wanting to remind us Jesus is that king. It's the king that Israel's been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah, the deliverer that the people of Israel have been waiting for. Jesus is the ultimate teacher and interpreter of the law, just like Moses was. Over and over and over again, the gospel writers are wanting to connect this story because there is one story to tell and that God is redeeming the world through the person of Jesus. God is redeeming the world through the person of Jesus. The gospel writers say things like Jesus is, or he, Jesus himself makes this claim, I am the presence of God. Jesus being like the temple. Jesus says, I have come in order to liberate, to free the captives, to heal the sick. All of a sudden, those relationships between humanity and each other, we see that full expression of it being, compl- of being tied together, of being good. Jesus calms storms and raging seas. This relationship between this person, humanity, and the world is good. Jesus knows who he is fully as God's beloved son, and it is out of that identity which he lives. All of these strands, all of the ways that the world has been disrupted from Genesis 3, Jesus is actually making work. So if we want to know who we are meant to be, called to be, what our destiny as humanity is, you look at the person of Jesus. But also, and this is crazy, not only do we see ourselves most clearly in the person of Jesus, we see God most clearly in the person of Jesus. Because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't it insane to you that you believe these things? Because it should be, and it should be the best news in the whole world, but also crazy that the person who is the example for me of what it means to be a human being is a real person who was born and lived on this earth, had flesh and blood, and had a name. But also that person who was born and lived and had a story is who gives us the most clear picture of what God is like. Absolutely insane and the most incredible thing in the whole world. And it's here in this person of Jesus that we see these strands of blessing, covenant, and kingdom coming together. Now, we see this story at the beginning of Matthew in Matthew 4. We're not going to look at it. just don't have time to look at it. But you can. We've gone over it before. When Jesus is baptized, we hear this voice come out and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is absolutely essential because it is God saying to Jesus and it is for the world to hear that this is is the one, that the identity of Jesus is as God's son. After that moment, immediately, Jesus is, he is led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you know that story, Jesus undergoes the temptations that are so strikingly similar to all of the temptations of Israel, but Jesus did not fail. Jesus trusted God for his food. Jesus trusted God for his protection. Jesus trusted God for his own kingdom. All the ways that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded to say what Israel was supposed to be but couldn't be, Jesus is. 
completely and fully. And so when we see Jesus enacting this this story of blessing and covenant and kingdom, we see this redemption finding its fulcrum, finding its climax in this person of who Jesus is. And we see it most clearly on the cross. We know the story of Jesus. He lived, but then he also died. He found his way to the cross. And it's on the cross that we see again God narrowing the focus for universal consequences. This one man whose body is broken, who dies, becomes somehow a blessing for the whole world. This one man whose body is broken and dies on the cross is the way by which we enter into a new covenant. This one man whose body was broken, found dead on a cross, gives us the glimpse of what God's kingdom looks like. Humility, self-sacrifice, ultimately love. This is why we are here. Because this thread of redemption that needed to begin after Genesis 3, God has been faithful to enact and begin as a completion in the person of Jesus Christ. It is why we can be blessed because of Jesus. It is why we have the opportunity to enter into a new covenant because of Jesus. It is why we actually believe that the kingdom of God has come because of the person of Jesus. And to put a stamp of approval on that, but to also show us what our destiny is, Jesus is raised again on the third day. Because new life is what redemption is after. Not what humanity is prone to do, which is to perpetuate death and violence and slavery and oppression and idolatry. No, but new life. New life. Colossians 1 says this. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus himself, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from from the dead, that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, not some things, not a few things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you and me, all of us, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you and me and all of us holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Thanks be to God that this is true. 
God, through the cross, is reconciling all things to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Those relationships that we cannot restore ourselves, God has begun to redeem. Beginning with Abraham, moving to Israel, continuing in the person of Jesus. And it is the work that has been going and will continue. But here's what I need you to know as we end. What does this arc of redemption, what does this redemptive narrative suggest about who God is? God is a God who makes promises. God is a God who makes promises. God is a God who keeps those promises. God is a God who invites and who wants a covenant partner. That's why marriage as a metaphor is so massive in the New Testament, because this idea of covenant. God wants a partner. He wants a partnership. He wants a people to represent and reflect and show the world what he's like. So God makes promises. God keeps promises. God involves and wants a partner. Ultimately, God can be trusted. If you can't read the Bible and come away with that massive, massive mic drop, then you need to read it again. Because the word for you, for me, for us, is that God can be trusted. Genesis 3, we see a people who fail to believe that that is true. The story of humanity is one that suggests we are a people who fail to believe that that is true. But in the story of Jesus and what God has continued to do and enact through the person of Jesus and the ongoing story of Jesus shows us that God is a God who can be trusted. So what does that mean for you? It means you did not earn this. You did not earn this. You being here has nothing to do with you, your good gifts or ability. You are here because God is a God who makes promises, who keeps those promises, and who invites and wants a partner. You did not earn this. Some of you need to hear that because you are living your life trying to earn it. And it is exhausting. Let it go. You cannot. You cannot keep the promises. But God can. And that's the good news. You did not earn it. That's not, not why you're here. We are here because God is a God who redeems. Your story, my story, our story together tells the world that God is a God of redemption. God is a God of redemption. Each of our stories has that, has that as its background or foreground or the whole thing. So my prayer for us, the word for us, is to trust. 
Trust the God who redeems. Because he has not let go of this world. He cannot let go of this world. He loves it. He loves it so much. I just filtered my mind in what I could say. He loves it so much. So much. That he has not abandoned it. He loves you. He has not abandoned you. Those of you who are on the sidelines wondering if you want to be a part of the story, the news for you is you already are. Whether you like it or not, this is your story too. The good news that I have for you is that you can turn your life toward God to say yes, that is my story, and I want to live in it. I want to learn how to live in it. But some of you are here, and you've been feeling that tug and that pull, and you're resistant, and I get it, because it's hard, and it's risky, and it's scary. But maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to trust the God who makes promises and keeps them. Maybe it's time to trust the God whose story of redemption includes you. Maybe it's time to know that that is your story as well, and to live in light of that fact. So if that's you this morning, there's going to be an opportunity to pray on the sides. That might be a good place for you to go. It's not just for those of you who feel like you want, you want to recognize God as the one who has made you, who, can tr- who you can trust, Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's not only for, for those, but I encourage those of you who feel that, who sense that, to move, to go. And perhaps for the first time, to entrust your life to the good hands of Jesus Christ. But also, those of you who need to return, to come back, you're like the people of Israel, you're like me, who disrupt those relationships constantly, find yourselves always in the same pattern, but you want to return. The good news is, God has always kept his promise. God has covenanted with you, and whether he likes it or not, he's going to hold on to you. The good news is he does like it, and he likes you, and he loves you, and he wants you to return. So perhaps that's where you're at. You can go to the sides, be prayed over, be prayed with, and trust your life to God afresh and anew. But maybe it's also too scary to move. Well, if you came here with somebody, chances are that somebody knows Jesus. Talk to them. Find me. I'm going to be sitting right down there. I'd love to talk to you. The best news in the whole world is that God has shown us what he's like in the person of Jesus, that God has made it possible for us to know him through the person of Jesus, that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. This is why we are here. This is why we worship. And this is why you have an opportunity to receive the invitation that God is presenting to you. I'm going to pray. God, I, I ask that you would speak very clearly to all of us, but especially to those who need to know that your redemption includes them. God, you know me, you know my heart, you know my mind, you know my insane ability of being able to talk myself out of, of things, of receiving 
the good things you want to give to me, the love you want to show me. God, if there is anybody here like that, I pray that you'd speak more loudly, that you'd help them to release, release that fear. God, I pray for those who need to return. Those of us this morning who felt like we just woke up. God, I pray that you'd remind them that, that you are the God who's like the father, that when the son leaves and squanders and returns home, the arms are open. So God, I pray that people would return to you. God, thank you that you are a God of redemption, that you do not let us live in the pits that we make, but that you redeem us and you pull us out of those and you transform us and you redeem us and restore us. Thank you that you are that type of God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.